Let's open our Bibles again this morning to the text that we talked about on Monday, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Now you remember that in our last study we looked at verse 18 and talked about the idea of not being drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but being filled with the Spirit. We talked about how that pagan religions in that day believed that when you got drunk, you ascended to a higher spiritual plane, and consequently you could commune with the deities that way. The Apostle Paul says, not so. If you want to commune with the true God, then be filled with His Spirit, not filled with wine. We also said that when a person is filled with the Spirit, there are three things that happen. We noted them. Let me read them again for you, starting in verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Three things happen when you are filled with the Spirit. First of all, singing. Secondly, saying thanks. And thirdly, submitting. And those three things encompass the three basic relational dimensions of life. Singing is within myself. Saying thanks is between me and God. And submitting is between myself and others. So all of the personal dimensions of life are covered. And for our time this morning, I want to talk particularly about that first one, singing, uh, which uh, is very important to all of us, as we have just exhibited, and, and we always do in chapel. And then just, if we have time, briefly talk about the second one, saying thanks, and even more briefly, the third one, submitting. The first consequence of the Spirit-filled life is singing. That is toward yourself. That's a very personal response. It is reflective of the attitude of joy. We talked last time, remember, about joy, and then about gratitude, and then about humility. Joy within myself, gratitude to God, and humility with reference to other people, again, encompassing all our relationships. But I want to talk a little about this idea of singing, what it means to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, what it means to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. It really fascinates me, frankly, that the first result of a spirit-filled life is an internal attitude. The first thing that happens in a spirit-controlled believer is that that person is a happy person, a joyful person. And that joy expresses itself in a song. It's as if God has put music in the soul, and that music is released when the person is under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a number of things that can be said about this. Now, let me just jump in by giving you a little bit of a background. One of the things that you see in the Old Testament is that where you have salvation, you have a song, the song of salvation. In fact, the word new is used more times in the Old Testament with song than any other substantive, any other noun. More than new heart, new life, new mind, new birth, new anything, is new song. And the new song is always connected with redemption. Always. If redemption accomplishes anything in the life, it is that it gives a new song. If you go back to Psalms, and we won't 
take the time to go through all of the passages and just start in about Psalm 33 and just wander through the Psalms, you will find over and over again, repetitiously, the mention of a new song. And it's always the song of redemption. Then you will find, if you go to the very end of the Scripture in the last book, and I'll just point that out to you, you're very familiar with it, I know. You get into chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, and you have this whole idea of singing praise to God in eternity. And in chapter 5, verse 9, it says, and they sang a what? A new song. A new song is consistent with the expression of a new life in Christ. Music is definitely the language of the soul, and it is also the language of the emotion, and it is also the expression of redemption. If you go back to Exodus chapter 15, for example, you have that great redemption event when the children of Israel were delivered from the land of Egypt and God drowned all Pharaoh's army in the sea and the children of Israel were liberated. And immediately it says in chapter 15, verse 1, Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song. They sang a song. And the song goes like this. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. And the song goes on for about 18 verses. Redemption is expressed in a song. Music is a part of our expression of salvation. I don't know if you realize this, but in the temple in the Old Testament, for example, there were 38,000 people who served in the temple. 38,000. 4,000 of them sang. One out of every ten was a singer. That's a large choir, 4,000 people. In Exodus chapter 15, that same chapter I just alluded to, after the song of Moses was sung in those first 18 verses, Miriam, who was the sister of Moses, created a woman's chorus. And a bunch of women got together and sang the song of God's deliverance. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 5, the prophets of God got together and formed a male chorus. In 1 Chronicles 13, 8, the whole people of God came together in a congregation with instruments and praise. And it says they sang, I love this phrase, with all their might, which means loud, loud. And the Psalms repeatedly say, sing unto the Lord a loud song. God likes it loud. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes I think he likes it soft, but the Scripture talks about the fact that he likes it loud. First Chronicles chapter 16, verses 4 and 5 tell us that David formed a tabernacle choir. What for? To lead the people in singing praise to God. And after the temple was built, First Chronicles chapter 23, verse 5, Solomon had a temple choir. And as I noted earlier, that temple choir had 4,000 people in it. In Ezra chapter 2, verse 65... Zerubbabel also had a temple choir in the next temple. In Judges chapter 5, I don't know if you remember this, Deborah and Barak sang a duet. Some of the Levites, by the way, were skilled singers. You know, the Levites supported the, the priestly work and some of them were singers. Some of them sang solos, some of them sang in groups, and some of them were leading the music. In Nehemiah chapter 12, after the great time of revival, verses 40 to 42, it indicates that there was a great loud singing of the people of God antiphonally. This group over here singing and this group would answer over here and they would sing back and forth. Second Chronicles chapter 5, 13 says the people all sang in unison. 
In Psalm 68, verses 24 to 26, it tells us the people of God sang, and sometimes they chanted. They had a number of instruments, by the way, in the Old Testament with which to sing. They had a thing called an azor, which is like a harp. Have you ever heard of a dulcimer? A dulcimer, sometimes you hear that coming out of sort of the Ozarks. That's a kind of an old instrument. It's a stringed instrument that you don't pluck, you just strike it, which is what a piano is, only this one you strike with your fingers. They had a harp. They had a funny instrument called a sackbut, which was a, a sort of a handheld lyre or harp. They had drums, by the way, so, you know, drums have not lately invaded the kingdom to corrupt it. They've been around a long time, drums. They had timbrels, they had bells, they had wind instruments, they had trumpets, they had cornets, they had flutes, they had pipe organ, they had a ram's horn that they just blew loudly. God obviously loves music. And if you read Psalm 150, you read about all of that stuff that God had allowed them to develop so they could praise him with the trumpet, the harp, the lyre, timbrel, dancing. By the way, the dancing referred to there would be very, very different than our kind of dancing. There is no indication in Scripture or in Jewish history that men and women ever danced together. They danced independently of one another in a way to express the beauty of motion to give honor and glory to God for the creation. Stringed instruments, pipes, cymbals, resounding cymbals, and so forth and so on. So God is really into music. If you read Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 44 to 47, you read about the millennial temple, you will read that in the millennial time there will be a choir loft. And the choir loft, if you check the measurements out, it's an interesting thing, it measures it out in cubits, would be large enough for about 3,000 people. So there will be a great future choir to sing the praises of God. What was the last thing the disciples did in the New Testament at the Last Supper? What was the last thing they did before they left? They sang a hymn, didn't they? It translates into the New Testament. At the Lord's table, they sang a hymn. They may have sung a number of hymns through the process of that evening, but they sang a final hymn and then they left. You will also note that a number of passages in the New Testament probably are hymns. A number of the portions where Paul writes a very definitive, almost creedal texts are very likely hymns of the early church. Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 30 appears to be a hymn of the early church. Uh, what were Paul and Barnabas doing in jail in Acts 16? What were they doing while they were in stocks? They were singing. You know how the stocks were? They weren't the kind of stocks you think about when you think of pilgrims or old England, where you have two holes in the top and two in the bottom, you sort of drop your arms through. The holes were graduated. There were a number of them. And uh, just little slots like that. And they took the victim and they pulled his arms as far apart as they could and pulled his legs as far apart as they could, stretched them to the very limit and locked them in at that point. Extreme pain would obviously set in because of the tautness of the muscles. It was in that very condition that they were singing hymns. Of course, if you read the book of Revelation, I noted chapter 5, verse 9. You can read chapter 14, chapter 15. You're going to find that we're going to spend forever singing because songs, the songs of redemption, mark heaven. So when spirit-filled people get together, they sing. That's always been that way, and it always should be that way. By the way, it's very interesting for me to note that from a historical viewpoint, if you go back and study ethnology or the history and science of man's religions, you will find that the only religion historically that has sung is Christianity. The rest have chanted or expressed things in a minor key. 
But only Christianity sings in a major key, and there's a reason for that. We only alone have a song to sing of all the religions of the world. Now, let's look specifically at the verse and see what the elements of music are that should characterize a spirit-filled believer. Speaking to one another. So we would ask the question, among whom do we sing? And the answer is among ourselves. Corporate worship. By the way, the Roman Catholic Church robbed the church of this for 1,500 years. They took singing away from the people. One of the things that was born out of the Reformation was music came back to the church. For 1,500 years, called the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholics took music away from the people. They did not sing. There were certain Gregorian chants and certain uh, chanting was done by persons in the liturgy, but not the people. In the Reformation, we know the great hymns came back. Some of the great reformers, by the way, were great hymn writers. And I might also add that the earliest hymn writers after the Reformation were all theologians. That's why we sing the old hymns. People say, why do we sing the old hymns? Why, why do we go back to the old hymns? Because they were written not by musicians, but they were written by theologians. And the depth and profundity and the poetic richness of the words have given them a legacy that lasts even to this day. We still sing hymns by Martin Luther because of the tremendous, profound expression that's in them. So we are to sing corporately. He says, speak to yourselves, among yourselves, to one another. Corporate music. Now, where does this music originate? Please note at the end of verse 19, with your heart. The music that we sing to the Lord rises up from within the heart. It is not simply verbalized on the outside. It comes from the heart. With your hearts is the right translation there in verse 19. Some others say in your hearts. With your hearts. It is internal. This, of course, refers to the point of origination. It is in Greek what you call a locative or an instrumental of means. It's the point at which it originates. It could be what they call an instrumental of cause in the Greek language. By your heart, with your heart, from your heart. It is the heart that makes the voice sing. Frankly, can't you tell when somebody's singing from the heart? As opposed to somebody just singing from the mouth? The heart makes the voice sing. And if the heart isn't right, the song isn't right. And the song isn't from a spirit-filled life, and it doesn't honor God. In fact, if the heart isn't right, you have no song. You have no song. One of the most pensive portions of Old Testament literature comes to us in the words of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. Who's this? Children of Israel taken out of their land and taken captive to Babylon. There we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. Nothing to sing. We hung our harps. Why? Because their hearts were broken. They were sad. They had been dispossessed of their land. And if the heart has no song, the voice has no song. Some people will sing for fame, and some people will sing for money. Some people will sing for pride. Some people will sing without being filled with the Spirit. But that is, in a word, hypocrisy. Let me give you a passage you probably ought to remember. Amos chapter 5. Listen to this. <clears throat> Verse 21. This is an indictment. And God, through the prophet Amos, is indicting the people. There are judgments in this particular book on neighboring nations, but also on Judah and Israel. And here you come directly to Judah and Israel. In verse 21 of Amos 5, I hate, God says, 
I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. And then he says this. I don't want anything to do with your phony religion. Then he says this. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps until I see justice rolling down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Don't you come to me with hypocritical music. I'm not interested in it. Don't offer it to me. It is a mockery. An absolute mockery. There's always the danger that we can sing artificially, that we can sing hypocritically, that we can sing performing, that we can sing with self-centered pride, that we can sing in a showcasing mindset. That displeases, dishonors God. Better you should keep your mouth shut than sing hypocritically. It really touches deeply into our heart because any time you offer God words, be they yours or those of a songwriter, that you don't mean, that's hypocrisy. And you're not excused because they're the words of a song. In fact, if your heart is right, those words give wings to the expression of your heart. So, it originates in the heart. God has put a high priority on music then, because it releases the emotion of the heart. Now, we said that music is the language of the emotions. Let me give you a little feel for music on a broad scale, okay? If you study music, and I've done a little bit of this through the years, you find that music does express the emotion of the heart. The pulsating rhythms, for example, of Africa, of aboriginal people, expresses the restless emotion of the heathen heart. It expresses the degree of apartness from God. It expresses the restlessness of their nomadic lifestyle in many, many cases. I've been to India, and I've listened to the snake charmers. I've watched them charm the snakes. And I listened to the music of India, Ravi Shankar and others who perform that kind of music. It is a music that involves melancholy tones, minor keys, winding melodies, going nowhere, with no point of origination and no point of conclusion, coming from nowhere, going nowhere, never resolving chords, because that's reincarnation. It starts nowhere, it ends nowhere, it goes nowhere, it accomplishes nothing. It has no resolution. Their music is utterly unresolved. We've all heard the barroom lounge music of Western culture, our own society, born in the bars, the lounges, the sleazy nightclubs, where the main object in the nightclub is seduction. That's the point. That's the purpose. You go there hoping to meet someone to be seduced or seduce. And, of course, it is the kind of music that fires the passion and breeds the desire for sex. And I heard the other day on the radio a discussion on this, and they said that in America, more people make love to the music of Neil Diamond than any other current singer. What's the point of that? The point is that's what that's for in the vernacular of our culture. Much of that music is for that purpose. The blues music of the South, what is that? The blues music of the South reflects the heart of the South. It reflects the pensive pain of depression of racial injustice, of deprivation, of poverty, of misery, of sadness. 
And then rock music, with its atonality, piercing, shrieking dissonance, with a total lack of direction, total lack of proper relationship to pitch, shows the unrest, the lack of direction, the lostness of man's hearts. In fact, the leader of KISS said in an article that rock music is designed to bypass the brain. There's no question about it, from my viewpoint. <laughs> Howard Hansen, who is connected with the Eastman School of Music, said, First, everything else being equal, the further the tempo is accelerated in music from the pulse rate toward the upper limit of practical tempo, the greater becomes the emotional tension. In other words, as you accelerate the tempo of music beyond your normal pulse rate, you increase tension. Secondly, he said in this article, as long as the subdivisions of the metric units are regular and the accents remain strictly in conformity with the basic pattern, the effect may be accelerating but will not be disturbing. In other words, regular patterns. Third, rhythmic tension is heightened by an increase in the dynamic power. The point is this. Speed up the rate, make it irregular and loud, and you generate anxiety. So, turn up the volume, speed up the tempo, make the beats irregular, go from extreme highs to extreme lows, and you can induce emotional tension. Add to that emotional tension, evil, sexual connotation and explicit words and thoughts, and you will go right by the brain to the body, and the result will be a mix of emotional tension and lust. That is essentially rock music. They did a, a test with this stuff at Temple Buell College in Denver. They took some plants, believe it or not, and put them in an isolated room with rock music, and they put some plants in an isolated room with violin music, and given the same amount of care and water, the plants in the rock music room all died. The plants in the violin music room all lived. Why? Music is a wave. Have you ever gone into the department store now and seen those weird plastic daisies that move around when they play music? <laughs> you know what makes those move? Waves. Sound waves. And sound waves penetrate. Aristotle said... I heard him myself. Aristotle said, <laughs> you don't believe it? Music represents the passions of the soul. And if one listens to the wrong kind of music, he will become the wrong kind of person. Not bad for an old guy. The Old Testament repeatedly says, sing unto the Lord. Sing unto the Lord. And Bach was right when he said, the aim of all music is the glory of God. The glory of God. Music is something we have to be very careful of because music is the language of the heart. We don't want to have an atonal, disoriented, tension-creating, lust-creating kind of vehicle to supposedly honor God. We don't want to have a sleazy, sexual, barroom kind of slurpy stuff, smashy, squashy, sloppy, agape music <laughs> to honor God. We don't want to deal with some kind of unresolved, strange Eastern music to honor God. You even have to be careful of some of that stuff that comes out under the title of New Age music. Not all of it is bad, but some of it. Just listen to what you're hearing and you'll find it difficult 
to use in any expression of worship because it has very little resolution. Starts nowhere, ends nowhere. You, you get one of those albums, have you ever heard it? You don't know what start and what end. Just keep playing. And you turn it over and you just keep playing and playing and playing and playing. And there's no beginning and there's no end. And it's, it's, the, it's, it's Eastern music. And that's Eastern mentality, which is reincarnation. And it's going nowhere and there's never any resolution. And that's what frustrates me most about it. I want something to start and something to end. And then you can start another one and end it too. But if it never ends and never starts, I get really confused. I read my theology, you see, into everything. It's my problem. I guess I see the world that way. But you don't want anything to do with music that reflects the lostness and the nomadic wanderings of people who are disoriented and separated from God. There is a reason, young people, there is a reason that truly Christian music has developed through the years the way it has developed. And it is because it is a proper vehicle to express before God that which is consistent with what we believe to be true about Him. Music is the expression of the heart. It can have a mental effect on you. We saw that in some of the things I said. In the 17th and 18th century, physicians recommended music for varieties of mental illnesses. Today, music is also used. There is even a music therapy for people who have emotional and mental problems. Have you heard of Muzak? Muzak is what they call white music. Uh, it's a company, originally, that produced white music that is in the background. You don't hear it all the time, but it's in most workplaces and it's in most department stores and uh, malls and places like that where you go. It's, it's in factories, dental offices, doctor's offices, stores. You, you buy a subscription, as it were, to this Muzak stuff. The president of Muzak, Dr. Jay Kennan, says this. Unlike drugs, music affects us psychologically and physiologically without invading the bloodstream. That's interesting. Research, he says, has indicated the inherent qualities of music to influence our metabolism, our heartbeat, and our pulse. Music Corporation, Muzak, has made a unique specialization in non-entertainment applications of music as it relates to behavioral sciences. The subtle influence of music has been harnessed in programs providing a controlled stimulus for people at work. It can literally control how fast you work by how fast they turn up the beat. Why do you think that they started having pep bands at basketball games? Not for the sake of the crowd, for the sake of the players. It has an impact on their metabolism. It, this kind of music affects changes in your physical responses. In fact, Muzak will guarantee if you get their music, you'll have increased productivity, better sales, and happier people. And they don't even know what's happening to them. Amazing. It can even affect us physically as well as mentally. Anastasius Kircher, a German 17th century medical doctor, studied how music affects us physically. In experiments with water on a glass rim and moving his finger around it, he found he could get different tones. Further study indicated that music moved the body fluids by reverberation of the outer air. Consonance, dissonance, tempo, pitch had effects on muscles and nerves. Have you ever seen, now be honest, have you ever seen a guy who's really into rock? They are categorically recognizable. Thin, shrunken face, pale, like this. Studies have indicated that their muscle tone is dramatically affected by the music they listen to. 
Just like you can go in, into a training room and have an ultrasound treatment, and those ultrasound waves can affect your muscle tone, that has that same effect. Turn it up high and let those waves pound on those people, and you see what you get. Uh, they even used music years ago to extract poison. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever heard of a, of a tarantella? That was a song with some connection to extracting spider poison. Tarantula is what it came from. 19th century studies found ways to measure these physiological effects. Hermann von Hemholtz, remember that, it'll be on the quiz, described the, described the components of musical tone affecting pulse, breathing, and even blood pressure can be affected by music. Certain kind of music rhythm can sap your strength. In fact, one particular beat they call the stopped anapestic rhythm can definitely affect strength. I remember a, there was a, a presentation of this on uh, Today, Jane Pauley. A stopped anapestic rhythm is short, short, long pause. It's the exact opposite of the heartbeat rhythm. They've tested of hundreds of people on this. Ninety percent registered an instant loss of strength when they heard that beat. That's a common beat, by the way, in rock music. Jane Pauley had a man on there and, and demonstrating it. And... Uh, he put a weight on her hand, and when they played that music, she couldn't hold it up. It's amazing. Music affects us physically. It affects us mentally. It affects us spiritually, or should. You know, uh, in the Scripture, sometimes when Saul was besieged and battered, he would call David to play for him, to soothe his heart. Now, music, then, is something we have to treat very carefully. All of that simply to say that. Music is a very, very significant part of our life. And whatever music we're involved in should be that which does not debilitate us, does not attack us physically, does not attack us mentally, does not attack us morally. And it should be, from the spiritual standpoint, that music which will allow us to give praise and glory to God. And not all has to be Christian music. I can listen to a great symphony. I can listen to a beautiful love song, the, the expression of which is within the bounds of moral propriety, and I can give God glory for the beauty of that symphony, and I can give God glory for the beauty of human love, which I myself enjoy. So there's a wide range of that. But I must be sure that I am listening to that music, which does not debilitate me in any way, spiritually, morally, physically, or mentally. And from the spiritual standpoint, I want to be sure that if I'm singing glory to God, I'm not doing it in some way that is inconsistent with that song. I mean, how could we possibly imagine that we could put words to a song that honored God and then put a rhythm that's going to make everybody weak or it's going to attack their body in some way in a negative sense? All right, let's go back to our verse. That's just a little digression to give you a little feeling for what's out there in music. Going back to our verse, um, to whom do we sing? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to whom? To the Lord. God is the audience. In all our songs, God is the audience. And we, in a sense, are the one offering God the song. We sing the song to him. It is an offering to him. Does it glorify him? Does it honor him? Does it please him? Because it comes from a spirit-filled heart. Now, let's look a little bit more into this verse. You see that word speaking in verse 19? Laleo, 
Very interesting word. Literally, leleo means to chirp. To chirp like birds. It's used of the babbling of small children. It's used of the sound of animals. It's used of the sound of grasshoppers. It's used of uh, musical instruments. In fact, the best way to translate it would be making sounds. Making sounds to one another. Which means this is a broad term. Now, there are a number of ways we can make sounds. The first way, making sounds, is in singing. Notice in verse 19, it says, uh, making sounds to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs by singing. Singing just means that, with the voice. The second one, please notice, and making melody. That's the second way. First way is by singing. The second way is by, this is in the Greek, actually, salantas. It is psalming, and it basically means to play an instrument. So, we can make sounds to God with the voice, which is the most beautiful of all instruments, the most flexible and the most beautiful. We can make sounds to God with the human voice, and we can make sounds to God with instruments. The word literally means to sing to the accompaniment of a harp, or to pluck a harp, or to play an instrument, says Kittle in his word studies. So, we can make sounds with words, we can make sounds without words, as long as the heart is praising God. Have you ever been overwhelmed with the filling of the Spirit in your life and filled with joy and just found yourself humming, whistling? That's just making sounds. Then he defines three ways that we do this, or three means, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Psalms, right back to the Old Testament, the psalms. Those great statements about the character of God. Hymns, humnas, simply means a song of praise. A song of praise. Spiritual songs, songs with a spiritual purpose, a spiritual intent. We usually think of spiritual songs as songs about redemption, songs about Christ. And so whether we're using psalms from the Old Testament or hymns, or spiritual songs, hymns we usually think of as those more serious hymns that sing about the character of God. Spiritual songs are testimony songs that talk about what God has done in our life. We can sing them with our mouth or we can play them on an instrument. So, among whom do we sing ourselves? From where do we sing the heart? To whom do we sing the Lord? With what do we sing the voice and instruments? How do we sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? And that is the fruit of a spirit-filled life. It should be characteristic of your life. Look at your life. Do you love to sing? I mean, I, I think of any group that I'm ever with, this group in chapel sings as well as any or better. I love to be in our church because our people love to sing. And I think you can tell when it comes from spirit-controlled hearts. It's the expression of the work of God within me. It's not detached. It's very attached to the Spirit in my heart. Let me just mention the two remaining results of a Spirit-filled life. For the sake of time, we don't need to dig into them. But the second one is saying thanks, gratitude toward God. The second thing that should be characteristic of your life is thankfulness. Look at verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things. Boy, what a comprehensive, airtight statement. All the time... Giving thanks for all the things that happen to you. That's characteristic of a spirit-filled life. 
that is not necessarily characteristic of all of us all the time, right? We can get negative, complaining, bitter, selfish, self-centered, and nothing is ever right and nothing is ever enough. But the spirit-filled, Christ-conscious Christian gives thanks for everything. I'll tell you something, folks. If I am with a person long enough, I can tell you whether they are a spirit-filled Christian. Not because I can see their heart, but because I can sense the expression, right? If I see joy internally, sense of peace and satisfaction that bursts forth in a song. If I see thankfulness, gratitude... No matter how difficult life is, no matter how bad you feel it's become, where you see that kind of gratitude, you know there is the Spirit of God in control. First Thessalonians 5 says, in everything give what? Thanks. You're to do that. And the spiritual Christian will do that. Always for all things. We should be thankful at all times for the gift of Christ, for the goodness and mercy of God. For the remembrance of God's holiness, for Christ's power, for his reign, for his second coming, for heaven, for the reception and effectual working of the word of God in our life and the life of others, for God's deliverance in our life, which removed us from sin and Satan, for victory over death, for wisdom and might, for the triumph of the gospel, for the conversion of others, for faith, for love, for grace, and on and on and on. We should be grateful all the time for all things. And it doesn't matter what happens in our life. If you're spirit-filled, you're going to be grateful. Would you notice the end of verse 20? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Again, our gratitude is directed toward God. But it's in Christ. In Christ. See, we're by nature so self-seeking. So, so uh, bent on getting things the way we want them. And when they aren't that way, we aren't thankful. We have to learn to give thanks in Christ. In other words, we have to... We have to identify with Him. His thanks to the Father sort of rises in us through His Spirit. Think about Christ. He deserved glory. He got shame. He deserved love. He got hate. He deserved worship. He got rejection. He deserved praise. He got scorn. He deserved riches. He got poverty. He deserved holiness. He got our sins. And it went that way through His whole life. And yet He was always thankful to God. What a lesson for us. We deserve humility. We get glory. We deserve hate. We receive love. We deserve rejection. We receive sonship. We deserve scorn. We receive affection. We deserve poverty. We receive riches. We deserve sin's curse and we receive God's holiness. We should be so thankful. So thankful. That's how you identify your spiritual condition. Are you thankful? Are you joyful? I remember reading a poem many, many years ago. A city mission in London found a woman in the last stages of disease. She was in a room so grim and cold that poverty was written all over it. This woman was just dying in this terrible place. The dying woman managed a faint smile as she said, I have all I really need. I have Christ. And a man who was there in that room that day went back and penned these words. In the heart of London City, mid the dwellings of the poor, these bright golden words were uttered, I have Christ, what want I more? Spoken by a lonely woman dying on a garret floor, having not one earthly comfort, I have Christ, what want I more? 
He who heard them ran to fetch her something from the world's great store. It was needless, died she, saying, I have Christ. What want I more? Oh, my dear, my fellow sinner, high or low or rich or poor, can you say with deep thanksgiving, I have Christ. What want I more? And the final characteristic of a spirit-filled life is found in verse 21. And just to mention it, submission to one another, which speaks of humility. Considering others better than myself and being more concerned with their needs than my own. Show me a joyful person, I'll show you a spirit-filled person. Show me a thankful person, I'll show you a spirit-filled person. Show me a humble person, concerned about others, not himself. I'll show you a spirit-filled person. You want to be that person? I'm sure you do. Let's bow for prayer. Dear Father, we can say with that, Lady, I have Christ, what want I more? Make us ever thankful that whatever we don't have, we do have Christ. And so much more of which we are unworthy. Fill us with your Spirit as we yield to the Word dwelling richly in us. And may we manifest that through joy, gratitude, and humility. We offer it all to you for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.